Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. Vivek Atluri is a foreign service officer for the USAID, currently stationed in Cairo, Egypt. The USAID is the lead U.S. government agency that works to end extreme global poverty and enable resilient, democratic societies to realize their potential. This is done through protecting human rights, furthering education, strengthening democracy, and advancing food security and agriculture. Prior to this, Vivek joined the Peace Corps and spent two and a half years in Ukraine as a community-based developer, where he worked with local organizations to increase their resilience and improve their community. Prior to his time in Ukraine, Vivek was a project manager leader at IBM, which is where he and I met. Vivek graduated from Ohio State University, excuse me, the Ohio State University, and subsequently received his MBA from Tulane University. Vivek is what I would consider worldly, as he grew up in India, has lived in 11 U.S. cities, has lived in Ukraine, Egypt, and he speaks seven languages. In this episode, we chat about life in Ukraine. We chat about what it was like to leave a high-paying job for the Peace Corps and how to have calculated confidence to pursue your goals. Enjoy. All right, super excited to have Vivek on the podcast today. Vivek, welcome. Thank you, Clay. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. It has been a long time since we've connected, so I'm just so excited. So the listeners can get to know you a little bit more. I'm going to do a couple of sure. would-you-rather questions, so we'll jump into it. Would you rather never eat cookies again or only ever drink water? Oh, that's tough. Uh, I, I think I'd give up cookies, to be honest with you. Yeah, I never thought I'd say this in my life, but I'd get, I think I'd give up the cookies. Your five-year-old self is very disappointed. Attending at your current age. So whatever your current age is, you get to attend mm-hmm. the, these things at your current age. Would you rather have season okay. tickets to the to the 1998 Bulls or the 2016 Warriors? 98 Bulls. I figured that was going to be the immediate answer. Yeah, and my family's connected to Chicago, so I grew up a Bulls fan. I remember watching the 98 Bulls. So I'm, I'm a little bit older. That's why I get that advantage. <laughs> Love it. All right. This is unique for you because I know you've lived in a couple different places. So if you could live in one country that you have never lived mm-hmm. in before, what would it be? And before mm-hmm. you answer it, just share where you've lived. Okay. So I've so far lived in India, Ukraine, Egypt, and the U.S., of course. I've traveled to about 23 or 24 countries. Um, so if there's one country that I've never lived in and that I could live in, uh, I think I would go with Italy, actually. Because I've been there enough to know how much I like it. Uh, I like the hospitality of the people there. And I love the food there. I'll happily visit you there. You and I met at IBM in 2012, mm-hmm. which seems like forever ago because it kind of was. It was a decade ago. And we met in a I trading call program called the Summit Program with you know over 100 other people and went through... You know, six to nine months of training of global sales school, learning how to sell. And you know, now we're sitting here a decade later, both doing, I'm doing a little bit different of a thing. You're doing a very different thing and just excited to reconnect here. But I know you have some fun stories from when we were, when we were there, you have anything you could share? I've got a good story. This, this is very relevant to global sales school and what we were learning at the time. Uh, and we had this incredible instructor named Ferdin Yusuf Zeta. And Ferdun, I'm sorry, Ferdun. And Ferdun had this like incredibly calming voice that like you could sit there and listen to him for days. And he was essentially teaching the rest of us how to sell. 
And I think he'd spent 20 some odd years at that point in IBM uh, in a career in sales. And, and so he had this Zen-like approach and he was teaching us the various techniques and the methods for sales. And, you know, I just took kind of what he was telling as gospel. So he would say, you know, the really important thing in the building a connection with somebody or building a relationship with somebody is asking open-ended questions. Now, he was talking very specifically in a professional sales context. Well, I took this a step too far. So during the early stages of global sales school, I was on a date, uh, on a section set up on a blind date with uh, this really incredibly fascinating person. I knew a little bit about her, but I didn't actually like know her, never met her before. And I was a little nervous and I didn't know what to start the conversation with. And, you know, Ferdoon always told us, you know, you've got to ask the client to tell them about themselves and tell us about their problems or whatever it is. And they open up. And then what we were trying to do is essentially build a solution around the problems that the client shared with us. So I'm a little nervous. I'm on a first date. And I asked this uh, person, I asked her, uh, so tell me about yourself. And she just looked at me and she's like, that might be the laziest question somebody's ever asked me. I was like, you're absolutely right. Uh, but I didn't know. I, I was like, and the thing was, I did an immediate mea culpa. I was like, you're absolutely right. But honestly, like, I have no context of starting a conversation with you. And I just thought this was the best way to start a conversation. But you are right. It's rather impolite and, and awfully direct. And, 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 and in doing that, like, it, it, things obviously ended up not working out with her, uh, even though we did go on a second date. So I did earn a second date with her. Uh, but but it never it never went past that. And uh, it, it's really fascinating now, like when I think about that story, because it, it's really what Ferdinand was teaching us was kind of like a basic concept of how to, to create a connection. What I needed to understand at that time was that each client, each customer or each person, whoever they are, first of all, you can't really mix professional and personal things in the same way. Uh, you can't look at them the exact same way. But also each human being needs a specific human touch. And that's where, like, maybe I didn't realize that right away at that time, but over time I kind of recognized that I can't just have like this one size fits all approach to sales professionally or one size fits all approach to like connecting with other people in my private life. And so that was, and I remember telling this story in class to Faradun the next time we all met and the class got a good laugh out of it at the time, but I feel like I've learned a lot more since as I've reflected on it. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Let's say that you're going on a date again, blind date. Yeah. How are you approaching it this time? Yeah. This time I'm probably asking uh, kind of like, hey, how's your day going? And genuinely mean that, right? Because sometimes culturally we're, we're taught to just ask that question. Uh, but it's really like what, what physical cues am I going to follow that up with? You know, am I going to make good eye contact? Am I going to stay with this person while she tells me about her day and then ask really thoughtful follow-up questions? Or am I just going to ask that question for the sake of asking it? It's like when you walk by people in the street, typically, you know, how are you? It's like, I, they don't actually want to yeah. know how you are. It's just, that's just what you say. And yeah, and, and it was really funny too, for me, like when that record, when, when the realization happened was uh, when I went to Ukraine and they were giving us like this cultural education so that we could, we could kind of like blend into the community. And one of the things they told us was, you know, you Americans do this. This is a very American behavior. And I was like, oh, yeah, we kind of do do that. We just ask because it's protocol, not necessarily that. And you, the Ukrainians were explaining that when you ask me that question, I actually think you 100 percent care. So I'm going to give you bad news. Like Americans, you what you want to really hear is it's going great. Like ask the question and the response you want is it's going great. And then you want to get to the next topic, whatever that topic is. Whereas Ukrainians, they were like, no, 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 we're going to tell you what all is not working in our life. If you don't, you're not interested, then that's going to create a disconnect between you and I. And I was like, that's so fascinating. Did that ever happen? So I got there at the, in the fall of 2017. So I'd spent five years at IBM, and then I ended up in Ukraine via Peace Corps. And so I, I, was, I was one of those, at that point, I'd had enough of like kind of this change in my life where I, I realized that these career accomplishments and everything that I wanted to get when I, when I got into business school and when I got out of business school, they were really cool and they were important to me, but they weren't necessarily important to others in my life other than the fact that they were important to me. And so like, what was I lacking as a person was kind of like this little reflection that I had. And one of it, one of the things I felt was, you know, I, I didn't necessarily see people for who they were, what they were and, and the, the importance of the people in my life other than my immediate family and friends. 
And I just, I don't know what it was. I can't completely explain it, but I just recognized if I take the time to just be more present with complete strangers, if I'm just having like a two to five minute conversation, I can have a tremendously positive impact on their day. And that was kind of like, that kind of flows into like slowly the evolution of my purpose and my why, where I, I kind of started wanting to make interactions with me real positive for somebody's day. And this was a real dichotomy from my early 20s to my early 30s. Like even by the time I got to IBM, I started caring a little bit more about people. But by the time I left IBM, it really became a much, much bigger focus of my life. You know, I ask every guest the same question. So how would you define your yeah. why or your purpose, Vivek? For me, uh, what, what I wanted to do was I wanted to be realistic um, when I, I kind of was trying to piece this together in my head. Uh, because like, it's so easy to sit here and say, I want to I, I set these incredibly massive goals for myself and say, you know, I, I want to really be able to impact a community this way, a community that way. Uh, I want to be a po positive role model for kids. And, and hopefully someday I'd like to be a dad too, right? Like, and, and so these are all things that I think about. But what, what I really boiled it down to was, I'd really like to have a positive impact on two to three people around me in my life. And because like that actually is the best way to essentially pay it forward. Um, and also that's sustainable. That's realistic. It's not, it's not this megalomaniac self-absorbed nature of trying to impact people positively because I'm like very cautious about that. And I, and, and I constantly check myself on that. I'm like, are you being arrogant? Are you being full of yourself? Do you think you can do too much? Are you biting off too much? And so that's why I set this goal at two to three people, because I feel like if I can impact two to three people in a positive way where I'm a very optimistic person by nature, and I understand that that's not for everybody. I understand each of us has a different constitution, different life experiences that, that create that mentality. But I feel like if I can be positive and convince those around me that they have unlimited potential, and that, that's really one of the things that I really enjoy watching somebody else have this realization that I can have that big thing too, that the only people on TV aren't the ones who can accomplish these really great big things. Me, this person that's a 16 year old at the school right now, by the time I'm 25, I might potentially be a big deal in my community. And th that's the only mindset I want people to have because the reality is, is yeah, some of us will be, some of us won't be, but that doesn't matter what we will or what we won't. What matters is, is did we maximize ourselves? within within the parameters like uh, of our own mental jails so to speak because one of the things i really learned when i spent time in ukraine was these are highly intelligent people they're very educated but they have very low self-esteem like now things are changing because of the war going on there and i don't want to get too much into that but what i observed then was that they just kind of was like well you're american you can do this and i'm like what's the difference between you and me like other than like a passport we're both people, we're both intelligent, we're both educated. Why can't you do what I do? And, and I constantly ask this question and I rarely get a good answer. And so th that's kind of like the evolution of that thought process is like, I feel like there's so many people who don't unlock their full potential because they create their own mental shackles. I love your why, a positive impact on two or three people. If you're willing to share, do you have the list of the two or three people? There's, there's a couple of really good friends from Peace Corps really that I'd like to say that I've had a positive impact being friends with them. And, and this is a really a fascinating thing for me because let me, it's going to be a bit of a long story, but let's pull back to like kind of why I ended up in Peace Corps. Uh, and, and I think then it'll kind of connect the dots really well in the end of this. So what, what was happening within the, like when I was in year two or three at IBM, um, I was pretty good at my job. I, I was good at being a project executive. I was good at managing details of, various, uh, you know, services contracts that we would take on and things like that. But I didn't feel fulfilled as a person. Um, I, I didn't feel like, hey, I'm meeting my full potential. And one of the reasons was, is, you know, by the time we were at IBM, I spoke, I'd say four and a half languages, uh, because I jokingly say four and a half because my Spanish is pretty lousy, but I can get by. And so, like, I always thought of myself as this person that, that, that had, like, this tremendous potential to be an international person and whatnot. So then, during 2014, 2015, I think, when the rise of ISIS was happening, 
and I was constantly seeing this in the news, it was one of those things I felt like, hey, somebody like me who understands different cultures very well, being an immigrant myself, I immigrated to the US when I was three years old, moved back to India when I was six, and then moved back to the US when I was 13 again. So I'd, I'd already been a multicultural kid. And so, like, I understand certain cultural nuances that people who've never been exposed to other cultures, especially at a young age, aren't going to pick up on. Uh, and, and that's that's one of the gifts of, like, you know, the challenging nature of my childhood where my parents were moving me around a lot. But then as an adult, it ended up becoming like this really valuable talent. And so I thought, hey, I could be a part of like our military and potentially kind of help with all of that. So I called up uh, one of our one of our summit classmates who is a uh, ex-military Navy guy, uh, Chris Lisk. And I asked Chris, I was like, Chris, kind of tell me about the Navy. And Chris gave me the spiel. And he told me what the recruiting process would be like. I was 33, maybe almost 34 years old at the time. And I was very apprehensive about joining the military, going to officer candidate school in my 30s, where I thought all my peers were going to be in their early 20s. And I thought the 10-year age gap was going to be very difficult for me to connect with them. Even though I actually had a firsthand example at Summit that the two people that I connected with the best were actually like eight years younger than me, like uh, our friends Nathan Campanis and Callie Gorman. So we were very close as a group. Um, and, and so yet I, I don't know why I just felt super apprehensive about it. And I just backed out. I, I didn't want to do that. So then the idea of potentially doing something like the Foreign Service was in my head. So I take the Foreign Service Officer exam for State Department, and I pass the written portion of the exam, so the exam portion of it. But then the next portion is like an essay portion, and I didn't get through that. So I was a little bit upset, and I started researching, like, okay, what is it that I can do? Uh, how do I get in? And then I come to find out there's a lot of people who are just like me, who have a ton of international experience, a ton of language. They go to all these pedigree schools, and they get rejected, too, from the Foreign Service. So I, I didn't feel as down about myself. Like, I was really upset when I didn't get in. And so I, I was like, okay, but then I kind of put it on the back burner because like my confidence was a little bruised and a little hurt and my, my ego was hurt. So I, I was kind of like, okay, let me just keep kind of slog this out at IBM. And, and then in 2016, I started researching Peace Corps like late 2015. And I remember telling one of the other uh, project executives in the Rapid Accelerator Development Program, Brian was not in our summit class, but Brian was in part of the PE class. So I remember telling Brian Reardon, who was, a, who was a former Marine, Brian, hey, you know, I'm thinking about Peace Corps. And Brian was like, yeah, okay. And, and, and you know, like the community that I grew up in, you know, like being Indian American uh, in your 30s, you don't stop making a paycheck and go do Peace Corps where you're a volunteer. But as 2016 kept going on, it's hard not to pay attention to what happened in our country at that time. And one of my conclusions was the reason why we became sort of polarized and angry was that a lot of communities became disconnected from each other, like rural communities, especially like in my, my home state of Ohio, there was a huge disconnect. And that, that was one of the reasons the opioid crisis in Ohio was so bad. It still is, especially in Southeast Ohio, it became very economically depressed. And so it was really understanding, OK, like, how do we like help these communities get better? Like, how, like, because like it, it just can't be hey, we'll just pump money into it. That's not the solution in and itself. Yes, resources are needed to fix problems, but problems also need to be fixed from within. It can't be me, the outsider, coming in and saying, hey, you should do this with your community. This is how you should fix your problems. Because that's not necessarily going to be a sustainable solution because I may not know all the details, the culture, and the history of that place. And so we really have to understand all of those things. And so that's why all of a sudden Peace Corps became significantly more attractive to me because the way Peace Corps does development is it's community based. We embed volunteers in different communities. You build relationships in that community. You bring in community leaders. You teach them how if, if in some countries, in the case of like a country like Ukraine, which for 80 years had been part of like a uh, communist dictatorship. And prior to that, it was part of the empire of a czar on one half and the other half was a part of like a different empire. So these people are constantly ruled and subjugated. So they, didn't, they don't know what being a democratic society is, what a democratic community is. And so a lot of what I was doing was teaching people how to like civically engage. How do you do activism? How do you take a community problem? Like you have a pothole in the middle of the main street on, in your town and make it a big deal so that the mayor pays attention and gets it fixed. So, so those types of things where 
a lot of times, you know, like I, I kept hearing people blaming somebody else for the problem and I didn't like that. So I wanted people to sit there and say, okay, what is it that I can do to fix this problem? Like, what is it? And, and I, I thought the same way about the economy during the Great Recession. Like too, too often we're sitting there looking to some political leader or some elected official to fix the problem. The reality is, is we as individuals are the solution. And what we have to do is we have to start putting out solutions constantly and using our power as individuals in a community to collectively organize and then pressure our elected officials into giving us the outcomes we want. And I think too often we lose sight of that. So I thought going that Peace Corps route, embedding myself in a community where I'm completely uncomfortable, I don't know the language, I don't know the culture means I have to start from scratch, almost like a little kid and kind of put my biases aside. So that's kind of the path I went with. And Clay, I gotta tell you, that was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And more importantly, what the other thing I realized is that I connect extremely well with people both 10 or 15 years older than me, 10 or 15 years younger than me on an equals level, not, not on the level where I get to be kind of like this cool older uncle who's fun, who gets to still kind of like dole out advice. I learned as much from any of these friends who, are, who I'm very close with. There's three, three, there's three guys from Peace Corps I'm extremely close with. My friends George, my friend Garrett, and my friend John. And, and actually there's four, and my friend Richard. I learned as much from these four guys as I hope they've learned from me. And, 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 and even during Peace Corps, as much as I feel like the Ukrainian community learned from me, I learned from them. And that was really the most rewarding aspect of it. And so today, like going forward, you know, like I don't necessarily say George, John, Garrett and Richard need my help. They don't. These guys are four brilliant human beings who are going to be successful no matter what they do. But I like to think that I am a positive presence in their life where if they're down about something, they, they need some encouragement, they need some positive words and they need to brainstorm a solution to a problem. They know I'm there for them. Yeah, and I would imagine that they feel very similarly about you. And when you have those shared experiences together, you know, it just strengthens the bond. Oh, hundred percent. It's such a unique experience where you just get thrown into this other country. You're in four hours of language lessons every day. You have to pick up a foreign language and each of us picks it up at a different level. And then you go into this community, like initially, at least for three months, you're with another group of Americans doing these lessons. When you get thrown into the community, you're usually the only American in that community. And uh, it's, it's, it's challenging. And, and so there's this, like one of those things is almost like immediately you make eye contact with each other and then you have this mutual, like, I, I, I know what you struggled through. And there's this immediate connection that camaraderie that happens. And it's not just with Peace Corps volunteers in Ukraine. I, I had that camaraderie with other Peace Corps volunteers. And I'll give you a great example. Like, so I live in Egypt now. Um, and I moved to Egypt two days before Ramadan started. And when once Ramadan started for a month, this country was just like it. There's not a whole lot going on. So now I'm in a new country. I don't have any friends. I've never been here before. Like, how do I build bonds? And it ended up becoming like my, my probably the three people that I spend the most time with now here in Egypt that are not Egyptian are folks that were that are foreign service officers like me, but they're also returned Peace Corps volunteers. And uh, I have a quick anecdote about this. So my buddy Zach, he and I uh, were in the office, we're in a meeting and the meeting was a little delayed getting started because I think we we're having some tech difficulties. And so there's four or five of us sitting in the office and Zach and I are just going back and forth, cracking jokes, making everybody laugh and having a great time. And one of our, one of our staff, she asks, hey, it's like, how long, how many years have you guys known each other? You guys are having like a great little bro out here. I'm like, I don't know. We've known each other like a month and a half. It's, it's really fascinating how sometimes that trust can build, be built so quickly, especially around something like sports. Sports is a beautiful, beautiful example, right? Like I will randomly have a conversation about Ronaldo or Messi out here or Mohamed Salah, who's the best soccer player in Egypt, uh, who plays for Liverpool. He's a superstar. He's one of the top five players in the world right now. And it's this instant bond with people. And then all these other things flow out of that uh, versus like trying to say, hey, I'm like this official person, blah, 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 blah. Like nobody cares at the end of the day. And it's a really fascinating kind of seeing. And, and, and I even remember at Summit actually, one of the bonding factors was sports. And I know you uh, and Ryan and Nate and Barnwell, you guys all played hoops and Gidgaud. 
you guys all played hoops. You guys had this wonderful bond around, especially like when we had the courts available to us, like playing basketball with each other and stuff like that. And, and so th th there was a lot of like really cool connections there that, that happened that way. And I remember one of the first things Nathan Campanis said to me was that he was a Penn State fan. And there was this immediate like weird rivalry, but friendship. And I remember Matt Barnwell and Chris List talked about being SEC fans because Matt went to Georgia and Chris went to Florida and they talked about that rivalry. And so like it, sports is this incredible, incredible unifier across like so many cultural boundaries too. Yeah. Yeah. You're spot on. And, and this podcast could, I know with both of our sports fandoms could easily be all about sports, but we won't do that to the listeners. Maybe we'll have a separate one that <laughs> yeah. to, to just, you know, Nate and Ryan and Matt. Uh, in, in the future, but a lot to unpack there. I, I'm so glad that we got a sense of what your journey has been. And I want to dive in and dissect a little bit about that journey because that move from corporate to Peace Corps, that I know that had to sure. be difficult. You had to go through a lot of challenges. So I want to pick your brain on a couple of things. But before we did that, I you mentioned resiliency. I usually ask my guests sure. to define a growth mindset, but for you, because sure. of your journey, and I think where your passions are, I would love for you to define resiliency. It's, it's almost like it's something you can define for yourself. Uh, and the reason I say this is because it became, amongst the Peace Corps volunteer community in Ukraine, to some volunteers, it became a trigger word. Uh, because too often, anytime they were having a difficulty and they would ask for support, somebody would say, hey, your job here is to be resilient. And they'd get very upset because it's like, hey, look, I'm, I'm having a difficult time. Let's just have a conversation about it. And if we can solve it, we can solve it. If not, that's OK. But like if, if somebody immediately tells you your job is to be resilient, it might come off as they're being dismissive of your struggle. So to me, resiliency is really this. It's a character trait I feel like every human being has. And we're a lot more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. And sometimes, you know, like it, it, it's you have to have that moment of courage to 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 push yourself beyond what you think you can do. And once you get past that psychological barrier, again, this goes back to the mental jails I talk about, you get past that psychological barrier that you've created for yourself. It's it's amazing like what what lies beyond that. And and, and resiliency to me is something as simple as knowing that the winter in Ukraine is going to be extremely cold. I'm going to be fairly isolated. My language skills were at the level of a first grader. So I could only speak so much Ukrainian, so much Russian to get by. And I was going to have to deal with that from November all the way till April. And so, like, what do I do during that time? Like, can I sit here and feel sorry for myself? Or can I find activities to keep myself busy, keep, keep work moving? Because in the winter, the, the culture in Ukraine was like work would slow down a little bit. So, like, how, how do you get people moving? And, and you, can't, you can't impose your American work style on somebody else because that's not going to be the most effective way to build trust and growth. But then within that, you can also have like this growth mindset because growing, I feel like is a lifelong pursuit. I, I think anytime we psychologically tell ourselves I'm done growing or I'm done learning, the moment you do that, you essentially start the decline of your brain. I have no scientific evidence to back this up, but I think when, when you stop trying to learn new things, your brain just starts going into a slow decline. So I, I feel like you got to keep trying to learn new things. And, and in order to learn things, especially as we become adults, we have to be resilient because when we're children, learning is a lot easier. And I'll give you a really good example of why this happens. Right. So language is, is the perfect example. So by the time I was seven years old, I spoke four languages. So why was that? Because as a child, your brain is tuned to just absorb all this information. And as we get older, our brain becomes efficient. What I mean by this is, is as it becomes more efficient, it starts tuning out sounds that we don't need. So, for example, if you live near the train tracks, you know, the first month or so, you'll constantly hear the train. As time goes on, you stop hearing the train. Why is that? Because your brain essentially has tuned that out as sound that it doesn't need because it's trying to be efficient and kind of conserve energy and so on and so forth. And so language learning is similar, right? Like, So when you're younger, you're hearing because learning languages is listening to sounds carefully. As we get older, we, our brains are just like, hey, that's not relevant to my survival, so I'm not going to be fully attuned the way a child is. So the resiliency part here is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail. I got to get back up and try again. So the resiliency part and the growth part is, is you have to be resilient when you don't grow in a linear path because growth is really not a, a straight line. It's going to be ups and downs. You're going to have times where you have exponential growth, and then you're going to have flat lines. 
and psychologically preparing ourselves for that, again, I would say is resiliency. So this is my really long-winded way of giving you multiple examples of what resiliency looks like instead of just kind of giving you a dictionary, dictionary definition of it. Obviously, you've been very resilient in your career. And, and I want to dive into, uh, I'll paint a picture for folks. So you're at IBM, you're at one of the most prestigious comp- companies in the world with offices all over the place. You're traveling on airplanes, you're meeting with clients, you're meeting with Fortune 500 executives. You are working with some of the smartest people in the world. You're making a great paycheck. And you go from that to volunteering in Ukraine. And and you highlighted a little bit about what started to pull you towards that and away from this corporate right. world where it's comfort and it's in America, especially it's one of the definitions of success. While you did have this this desire to want to do it, I think there are many people that have the pull and desire to want to do something that maybe is more fulfilling, but never do it. So how did you go about actually doing it? The biggest barrier, honestly, Clay, for me initially was the money factor, right? Like Because there was a good paycheck at IBM and the bonuses were nice. And it, it did allow me to indulge myself is the best way I can put it. And I'd like to say that I probably lived a fairly indulgent lifestyle at that time. But I kept coming back like to myself and asking myself, like, like, is this it? Is this all of it? And I wasn't getting a happy response internally. And so, but then you keep thinking, okay, how am I going to pay off my student loans? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? All these other things that, that, that come with the, the need for financial resources. And, and I will never tell anybody that financial resources are not important. They are. But I think there's degrees of importance, right? Like it's, I feel like it's a bit of a spectrum. You need to make, basically make your basic needs. And then you need something beyond that because if, like, if you're somebody who likes creature comforts, you probably need a little bit more than that. And then beyond that, it's kind of gravy. It was kind of like how I rationalized this in my head. And I feel like each of us is going to have a different mindset on that. And that's perfectly fine. I don't think there's a right or wrong in this space as long as you're not hurting others uh, or stealing from others. Then I kind of was like, okay, so what, like, what is your big barrier here? And so I kept thinking it was the paycheck. And then finally, I was kind of like, hey, look, you know, if, if, if money is what you want to make or money is what you need down the road, there's always going to be pathways that open. I've maybe even to a degree had irrational self-confidence when it comes to myself at times, especially with my abilities in like an academic or professional setting. I, I, I wouldn't say that it's across the board in everything I do, but in those settings, I've always had a bit of like, hey, I, I, I can be good at this. I kind of slowly had like this internal dialogue where it's okay. You, you would, yeah, you would give up some money for a couple of years and then you'd come back with, you'd come back like a richer person, even though financially you're not going to be richer, but psychologically, mentally, your skill set, all of these. And I'd like to think that all those things grew while I was in Peace Corps volunteering. But that was kind of what I told myself. And, 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 and frankly, the other thing I was paying attention to is I was actually paying attention to kind of people who are financially successful in life. And one of the things I, I one of the common denominators I noticed with them is, is they were people who were willing to take calculated risk. So one of the things I talk about sometimes with my friends and everybody, because they see me say something or do something and they're like, wow, you're really open to taking risk. And to a degree, I am, but I'm one of those people, if I find something, let's say that maybe the larger group hasn't noticed about something because I dug deeper into a situation and I realized the risk isn't as high as it appears on paper outwardly, then all of a sudden, if I found one or two factors to reduce that overall risk of whatever it is I'm doing, I'm a lot more willing to do it. And so to the outwardly observing public, they're like, wow, that was a crazy decision on your part. But internally, I was kind of like, well, not really because these were my reasons internally, the X, Y, Z, whatever reasons I came up with. So I, I, I basically talked myself out of like being worried for my finances. And then furthermore, my parents were very supportive. So they were very supportive. They're like, okay, he's pursuing something. He's going after it. But my sister was fully aware of it. And my sister is another really important person in my life. Uh, she's always been kind of like my backbone, my support. And she really kind of was like, okay, I got you. Don't worry about it. And, and then my friends also, like all, all my buddies from business school, very, very supportive. They all thought I was having a midlife crisis, which I guess in a way you could define it that way. But I think it was more of a crisis of conscience uh, and, and like really just like what sort of impact can I have? What can I do that's better? 
Um, and so that was kind of like the process around that. And, and so when all of these barriers got removed or helped removed through my relationships with my friends, my family, and then just kind of adding up like and realizing two years in the grand scheme of things isn't that much, one. And two, financially, if you're willing to take risks, you'll always be able to make money. And, and, and so and, and then I kind of developed this new mantra at that time. It's like it's not really pursuing perfection. If you pursue excellence, no matter what you do, you can if you really want to monetize it, you probably can. Uh, and not that that's what I live for, but that's something helped me feel secure about leaving the paycheck. I'm so glad you brought up the money part because I think that it's almost like taboo a lot of times to talk about. And and I can understand the right. reasons why, but I, I think in this context that it's important that that was, as you said, basically the biggest factor as to why you wouldn't pursue it. And I think it's a big factor for almost anyone who is in the position that you are in at a corporate good job, you know, whatever you define success as or whatever society defines as success as. And then they get this, they feel this pull of, I want to go pursue my passion. I want to go start a business. I want to go volunteer more. I want to go to do all these things. But then the first question they ask is, well, how can I afford my lifestyle with going and making a third or half or a fifth or whatever of what I'm you know, currently making? And I, I want to tease out a little bit of this because I, I want to try and try to get into the mindset of, of you, you know, five or six years ago. You recognize that everyone needs these basic needs. And I would say that's you know, food, shelter, and safety are probably the the basic right. needs that all of us need. And you talked about a little bit of gravy on top, you know, right? What's, what are the cu- couple of cre- creature comfort things? And then all the yep. rest of it, you ba- it, it seems like that you basically said, I'm okay not having this or not having this as frequently. And exactly. I'm trying to think of the right question to ask because I think getting to that, like that sounds all very simple, but actually convincing yourself that, oh no, I can do this. I've been used to going out to dinner every other night and going to have drinks with my buddies and, you know, going to, uh, if someone asked me to go to on a trip or someone asked me to go to a, a basketball game, like no hesitation, you're going to go from that to actually, you know what? The only things I really need cooking at home with, with a friend or two and enjoying a good book and, you know, occasionally being able to splurge on something like a game or some travel, but it's not going to be as frequent and how to get yourself to to say you know what i have enough with having these basic things i'm just so curious how if you can recall back how you went about that i think it's two parts clay so one part is my upbringing itself right so i mentioned my parents like immigrated to the u.s when i was 13 so they were in their 40s and a lot of my aunts and uncles they immigrated here in their 20s and they had their kids here in the u.s so my aunts and uncles who immigrated in their 20s were financially settled by the time my parents got here. My parents were not financially well off when we got to the U.S. Um, I remember in eighth grade, mom having to get the discount lunch at school for me. Uh, I wore my cousin's hand-me-down clothes, uh, things like that. And my cousins were both younger than me, and I still wore their hand-me-downs because I was smaller than them physically. And so, like, I always remember those times. And... I never felt that bad about those times. I never felt really down on myself about those times because I always thought there was going to be a brighter future. But more importantly, I, I was always loved. Like my parents, you know, my sister, my sister, like this absolute guardian angel for me. She's my older sister. She's she's kind of like a second mom to me even. Like she's always babied me like that. So I've always felt that. And as I started getting older, one of the things I realized was it's not the material objects that I have, right? Like whether it's the nice clothes, nice car, whatever the heck else people are looking to get. It's really the people that I care about that care about me. And like, I have a tendency to like, when I connect with somebody, I connect with them at a very deep level. And so I felt like I had these relationships in my life. I I wasn't worried about the other things because I was like, I can spend time with my friends and we cannot spend money. We can just hang out. And so like psychologically having that and having also known, Hey, I've been poor before. It's not the end of the world. It probably gave me like this deep inner confidence that I'd be okay. Confidence is a recurring theme. It seems like in this decision process is that confidence that I'm going to be okay. 
and I can do this. And there are billions of people that live in the world that have the, you know, house that have the shelter that have the food and have very little else. And they're just as happy as they can be. And so the confidence that one, that you can find fulfillment, you can go do these things and remove the society uh, induced. Here's what you need to do in order to be happy, right? Have a car, have a, you know, have a big house, have spend all this money, buy these clothes, remove that, still go be happy. So you had confidence in yourself around that, but then you also had confidence in your own abilities that even if after a year or two, you, you, you said to yourself, you know what, this actually wasn't for me. I'm glad I tried it. The lifestyle is not for me. It's I'm not finding this, the joy that I anticipated. I'm not being as fulfilled that you had confidence that you could go back into corporate. You could go use your skill sets, use your talents that you, you had this confidence about yourself that even if it went poorly, that you would be resilient and go figure it out. And I think that that, that confidence, it seems like is really the theme of, of how it helped you make this decision. A hundred percent, Clay. And, and, and let me be careful not to, because I don't want to come off as somebody who's always confident about everything I do, right? Because I think it's important for people to know you can be confident in one area in your life and not necessarily confident in another area in life. And that's perfectly okay. Because I think sometimes what happens is the way we are socialized to the idea of confidence is, is like, if you want to be successful, you need to be confident. And I think it's really important for people to know that confidence is not something you're just born with. I think it's something you take time to work on and you build, and it's something that you may not have today, but you can have tomorrow. Uh, It's really important people understand that. Otherwise, what happens is they see a confident person, they're like, I can never be that person. And I think that's completely wrong. I, I, I like I look at somebody who's not confident today and I'd be like, you can be every bit as confident as my every bit as confident as Michael Jordan. Like no questions asked. It, it's it's a matter of putting the time and the effort to develop yourself in a specific area. And, and so that's kind of like where once you've had success, once you've done something where you've kind of changed course and, and went and did it and succeeded, you will start building that confidence because it's repeated success that really builds confidence. So yeah, you might fail. That's where you need the resiliency to, to come back and try again after you've failed. And then once you go through that and you've, you've hit success once or twice, then all of a sudden you'll start developing the confidence you need. And just because you're, let's say you're really confident in your ability to sell cloud, you may not necessarily be confident with your golf swing, right? And I'm giving you these like wild examples, but like, and it's perfectly okay. And so like, you got to like, it's it also, it's like this journey of self-discovery of finding what your what you think your strengths are, may or may not be your strengths, and then kind of developing your strengths while also not forgetting that you have weaknesses as a person that you should try to develop and improve yourself. And that's where the growth mindset again, comes back and hits, hits into it. This confidence you had is probably, it's calculated confidence. If you go to the Peace Corps and you're going to come out of that with experience in a foreign country with all the all the experiences that were that happened in said foreign country, you're going to have your corporate background. You're going to still be able to speak four and a half languages, and you you probably recognize that that resume can get you in the door and go have interviews, and then you Absolutely. have confidence that that you can go you know connect with people and and hopefully get job offers if that's what you wanted to pursue. And so I think it was more of a calculated confidence knowing that because of these experiences you've had and the background that you have, that you did have this confidence, but it was calculated. It wasn't, oh, I can just, I'll figure it out no matter what, you know, I I can go make the PGA tour tomorrow. No, of course not, because you don't have the experiences, but this, this is calculated confidence from, from you in this moment. And I think everyone, if they are honest with themselves about the good and you know maybe the 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 lack of experience that you can have this calculated confidence to to go pursue whatever you want to pursue. If you're open to it, I'd love to just explore a little bit about your time in the Peace Corps and a little bit about what you're doing today. Sure. Obviously, going over to Ukraine, and we're not going to get into what's going on in you know Ukraine today. That's obviously a, a very tough situation. But I'm curious before we get into what you actually did in Ukraine, just explain what life was like in Ukraine. Yeah, so I was there from September 2017 until March 2020. Um, and there was one six-month period I was in the U.S. from uh, December 
2018 till early June 2019 because I had a shoulder injury that I had to come back and rehab and I couldn't get physical therapy in Ukraine for it. So I think that kind of gives you a little bit of the, the situation in the community that I lived in. Life was pleasant is the best way I can put it because I wouldn't say it was easy, but it was always pleasant. I had mostly pleasant interactions with people. Occasionally I would deal with some, you know, like it's really fascinating, right? Because people, especially you go to a rural community in Ukraine, a, a five-year-old child has never seen a person who didn't look like him or his parents. So they see me who's, you know, obviously got darker skin. It, it's jarring to them. It's shocking. And, and, and it's nothing negative, nothing positive. It's just shocking. And you can kind of see like people's eyes kind of bounce off of you. And historically, Ukrainians have always been suspicious of strangers because their history has told them to be so. Um, and so it, it was it was a long process building trust in the community. Because one of the first questions I get asked is, um, are you married? Did you come here to marry somebody? And my answer to both questions is no. Um, and so, and then, you know, and you had to be careful and diplomatic in saying, answering the second question, no, because you don't want to sound like, oh, Ukrainian women aren't for me. No, it's not that. It's just, I'm not here for that. I'm here for really this whole community development, which is what we're doing. And, and majority of what Peace Corps does is actually teach English. Uh, but I was a community development volunteer, which really, in my case, meant uh, helping local NGOs be more civic, like uh, helping them achieve success in the civic engagement space, where they're connecting more with especially students and young people who then learn kind of the process of what democracy really is and how to make themselves a little bit more vibrant sustainable communities where you don't constantly need grant money to make the world go round. You kind of need to set up your own businesses, your own operations. Um, how do you educate people in the schools? Like where can you, and, and really there's a lot of cool stuff. Like, you know, something as simple as social media training where you learn how that, you know, doing 14 or 15 hashtags is the best way to get your post uh, maximum visibility. That was something I learned because I was trying to train people into this. So I was learning too constantly because they'd ask me, because they'd essentially say, hey, we're trying to do this. How do we do this better? So then I'd have to go research this because it's not like I always have all the answers. So in researching, I was also educating myself. Um, and so that was part of it. But then the other part is using something like Etsy and being creative with, uh, at the time, you couldn't get remittances into Ukraine from the US. Now you can. Now people from the US can directly PayPal people in Ukraine, which which is really helpful because, you know, folks, folks are in tight situations over there right now with the economy there. Uh, so it's, it, it was things like this where I was learning, I was able to teach others. So I was constantly feeling fulfilled. I felt like part of multiple communities, the volunteer community, the expat community, but then more importantly, that local Ukrainian community that I was a part of, I was always welcomed into the families. So when I first got there, I had a host family. I still, I'm still in contact with them. We speak every couple of months. Recently, like my host mom from that time, she asked, hey, you know, your host brother is part of this uh, cultural group. We're trying to send them over to South Korea, but we need to raise funds because they're essentially what they're doing is they're kind of doing like this, for lack of a better term, a charm offensive where they're sharing Ukrainian culture with the world to help raise funds for, you know, the various uh, humanitarian crises that are going on in Ukraine right now. And so like she, N Natasha pinged me and as soon as she pinged me, I went and like reached out to a bunch of my cousins, my friends. And so it, like, hey, my personal network and say, hey, guys, if you, if you have 100 bucks to throw at this, please do. Every single time when, when I asked, my friends and family immediately throw 50, 100 bucks without asking. One cousin actually would throw like a thousand bucks every time. And which is bonkers to me. But like he was able to do that. And, you know, he's in a financial situation where he can do such things. So he, it, it's just like all these kind hearted people in my family, in my life. Also, like that, that was a big part of like and I get care packages from home. And so it was it was a really wonderful time, really, because it was it was as stress free as I'd been for the most part. There was some stress in terms of like like especially like the first couple of weeks being in a new place, like the first weeks, first two weeks with my first host family, which was where I was doing the language training. So I learned uh, Russian and Ukrainian while I was out there. When I moved to my city, Alexandria, which is in the center of Ukraine, which is where I, I did my, my majority of my service. There, I was with another host family and that there weren't other Americans there kind of like to backstop me, so to speak, where I'd, I'd have time to go hang out with somebody who spoke English. I remember there was one stretch where there was four weeks before I had a face-to-face -face English conversation with somebody else. And I remembered the incredible stress relief that that was when I had that English conversation for the first time. Uh, and I didn't realize, like, 
like I'm, I can be a fairly chatty person, but usually it's, it takes a little while for me to like, like once I know the people around me, then I'll, I'll be a lot more talkative. But first off, first of all, like when I come into a new place, I'm generally just quiet and observant. And in this case, I was, I was the new guy and I was just yakety yakety yak because I didn't realize how much I missed just being able to speak English at a high level. So I'm curious, I want to get into the community-based development, but I want to ask if you were to go back and you could go have one meal in Ukraine, what is the meal you, you want to have? Oh man, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be two dishes. One is definitely borscht. Um, because that's their national soup and it is when made correctly, it is absolutely delicious. Um, the other one actually is like these potato pancakes that they make. Borscht has got beetroots, um, probably broth, meat broth, and you can have, you can put meat in it. You don't have to put meat in it and an assortment of vegetables. Uh, and it like, it's practically served at every meal. If, if your host mom is a good borscht maker. So I had a lot of borscht while I was there. Um. And the potato pancakes, they're potato pancakes with sour cream. I'm not a big sour cream guy, but somehow that combination is just incredible. Earlier in the pod, you talked, started talking about community-based development, which is what you were going to Ukraine to go do. And you highlighted right. that you, you, know, you embed people like yourself, go develop relationships within the community, and then try to coach those community leaders on how to civically engage. And how to take ownership over yeah. issues, even small, you know, relatively small issues, like you gave a great example of a pothole. So what would you say are the core tenets to actually developing a community like this? I think the number one thing is making a genuine effort at inclusivity. And I don't mean inclusivity in like a politically correct way. I mean in that members of the community should have input. They need to feel ownership in the solution. If, because if they have ownership in a solution, they have an emotional bond to the solution and they're vested in making it successful. Because at the end of the day, I could come up with the best solution for a problem. And if nobody buys into it, we're not going to accomplish our goal. And so I could be the outsider. I could see a problem and say, hey, you know what? If we do these 10 things, we'll be successful. But I need, I need a vast majority of the community to buy into that solution. Which means you have to have like these long, drawn out conversations. It's clunky, it's painful, it's slow, it's inefficient even. But that's the reality. That's, that's essentially the price we pay for democratic society where we enjoy the freedoms that we get to enjoy. Because the moment we stop giving up on those freedoms, all of a sudden, yeah, it's painful. The process is, it's, it's all these things. But you concentrate too much power with one or one or two individuals, you run the risk of them kind of losing sight of what's important, which is the, the overall community that they come out of. So that that's why you pay this painful price of being slow and if inefficient so that you can maintain that freedom. But then also you get a whole community behind a solution, which then makes it far more likely to be successful. And it's really hard, especially if you have failure, because a lot of times you have to take historical context also into account when you're doing something like this, right? In a country like the US, we are psychologically programmed for the most part for success. Like like the way we're taught our history, the what we know about our country, we've really never truly had, like the Great Depression was lean times, the Great Recession was lean times, but it's not lean times compared to the famine that Ukraine had, uh, the Holodomor. Uh, or something like that, right? So like the, the levels are so different on the scale of it is so different. And so that there's a national psyche. And, and I genuinely believe as Americans, our national psyche is, and, and I think this is a part of my like weird innate confidence or even irrational confidences. It's the Americanness in me. Oh, it, 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 things will get better. We'll get there. We'll be all right. And, and whereas in other countries, people don't necessarily think that way because their history says you can't think this way. And it's this weird cycle because if you don't think that way, you're never going to make things better because you have to imagine it for it to happen. It was a real tightrope there trying to get people there. What's an example of how you attempted to do that with people surrounding you with that psyche? The easiest way to do this actually is through children because children still haven't been fully damaged by the negative psyche, right? So what you got to do is you got to build them up. 
And so we, we, my, my, um, my organization was doing this community leadership development program. And we were, we were working with kids who were between the ages of nine and 14 in this program, this specific program. So my counterpart, uh, who was the head of the NGO that I, uh, supported, she had to be away. She couldn't teach the, she couldn't teach that Saturday class. And yeah, and I, I frequently found myself actually working on Saturdays and Sundays, and then my days off would be like a Monday and Tuesday, uh, just because of the nature of how the ebb and flow of work there. But so she couldn't teach the Saturday class, and she asked me, he's like, Vivek, can you teach the Saturday class? So I decided that I, I wasn't going to do just a typical lecture because like my counterpart, she was my mom's age, and she grew up in Soviet Ukraine, and that was a completely different world with a different structure. That was, you do what you're told to do. And the elders give instructions, the youngers follow the instruction. The boss gives the instruction, the subordinates follow the instruction. There's no, hey, let's have a discussion about what's the best solution forward. And so what I did with these kids, and, and I think we as adults sometimes forget that kids are actually just really, really smart too. The difference is they just don't have the life experiences that we've had. So they may not necessarily know how to like overall manage things and they, they don't necessarily have the emotional resiliency that we have as adults because over time we kind of build up the scars and the calluses and we're able to kind of cope with a disappointment and, and some other emotional aspects of our life. And that's really what being an adult is all about. So, but kids are really smart. They're very observant. So what I did was I took the kids and I broke them up into teams of three and I said, okay, each of you propose three solutions, three things you want to fix in the community. Kids came up with some very simple things, you know, one, one group of kids uh, and they came up with three things. But the things that I really remember stuck out to me was one group of kids wanted to set up something where the stray animals could like they, they would just go fill these like little boxes in different streets so that the stray animals could just come get a little bit of food. Right. The thought really counts like it wasn't necessarily the most practical solution, but the, they're thinking about it and, and getting them to think about it first and then tease out practical solutions was the path that I thought was the best way to go about it. Because like we have to brainstorm and we have to keep going, okay, why will this work? Why won't this work? And sometimes we had to do the experimentation. We had to fail. We had to go do it. It failed. And then we debriefed the failure. That's really kind of like how I wanted to push it. And I remember we were sitting in a meeting and after I did it, like the, first of all, the kids were extremely engaged and that's the number one thing, right? We want the community to be engaged in the solving of the problem. So now we gave them, I gave them agency. I gave them solution. So each, each group proposed three solutions. And I think there was three groups, maybe four groups. And then what we did was as a class, we voted on the best solution that each group presented and decided that we were good. We were going to move forward in trying to solve those problems. So I went and did that. And I'd never seen a group of kids more engaged, more involved. And honestly, they were really thoughtful and gave some quite realistic solutions. And so look at this. These are nine to 13 year olds who figured out the resources that their community has access to, a problem that th that's happening in their community and how they potentially want to solve it. And my counterpart came back and she was kind of like, wait, I've never done anything like this. I'm like, Valya, these are the types of things we have to start doing if we want to get different results. If we keep doing the things that you did that were introduced to you, that were socialized to you, we're just going to keep getting the same Soviet re results with a, just a different name to it. And so that didn't completely sink in because this is where going back in a country where building trust takes six, seven, eight months, like these people need to, first of all, needed to know that I was never going to abandon them. I wasn't just going to leave when it was convenient for me. And where I truly earned their trust was when I came back after my shoulder injury, because I had no reason to come back. And that's when I was able to really start moving things, moving some projects. Um, and, and really the thing that really became the best solution for me, the best, most effective thing that I did for adults there was train them on kind of project planning process, like breaking down your project, breaking down how to write a grant, the why of this grant, the purpose, uh, the main, the main outcomes, how are you going to measure your success? What is the timeline? What are the number of people you're going to train? Why is this a community problem? Just that communication process to professionalize how they communicate, especially with the Western world, because the Western world was the one that was giving them a lot of the investment to move forward and improve their country. Well, it seems like that the approach, it can honestly be applied, Vivek, to anything. I mean, we did this and do this in corporate America too. It's the same thing. It's go get buy-in from a bunch of different people and 
have everyone feel ownership, genuine ownership over a solution or whatever we're going to go do, because then they're going to go above and beyond to make sure that it, that they're going to do everything they can to, to ensure that it comes to fruition because no one wants to inherently fail. They don't want to mess something up. And if they feel like that it was their idea or partially their idea, then it's a whole lot better to have that ownership. So I can see how the setup of, of what you had going on in Ukraine is, you know, you're, you're there for a specific amount of time when you leave that hopefully there is a little bit more confidence in their abilities. There's a little bit more resiliency built in. It's, you're not going to change decades of history, but of their psyche, but their psyche maybe of a, of this community maybe changed a little bit to think when a problem comes up, you know what, we can do this, we can figure this out. And that mentality then can proliferate through the community. So I, I love the structure of that community-based development. I think that's that's really, really neat. And now, you know, I know you're over in Egypt. You and I are talking while while you're over in Egypt right now. And um, you know, you're not with the Peace Corps anymore with the USAID or USAID. Could you give us just a little bit of of what that is and what your mission is? USAID is United States Agency for International Development. Um, that's that's the long form of it. So if we look at our diplomatic process as a tripod, uh, we have our State Department. They are our lead diplomats. They are in every country and they work with, especially their primary focus usually is policy dependent. They're, they're working with policies. They're advocating for policies that are most beneficial to the United States of America within those other countries. The other two prongs of our diplom diplomacy are our military, Department of Defense. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize that our military does a lot of diplomatic mission work, uh, not just war. And, and so that, that's really important, I think, for people to know how much uh, humanitarian and diplomacy that our military does. And then the third part is USAID. USAID, really, a lot of what we do is implementing the projects and the solutions that the Department of State kind of negotiates with our uh, post-country partners or our country, our bilateral country partners, whomever that is. Um, so, for example, here in Egypt, we do education programming. That's, that's the biggest thing we do. We do we help with higher education and education. And, and what we do is essentially kind of help them build their, in, like, not necessarily like build like physical buildings, but build an infrastructure that that's more sustainable, so that they can improve the quality of their overall education. But that's not just all we do. We do water, uh, agriculture, uh, economic development. So there's all kinds of different things we do. And, and the reason we do this is to help our partner countries be more stable, achieve more like positive growth. And one of the things we found long term is, is when, when countries are more stable, they have stable democracies. And it's a big part of what we do is democracy. Uh, and and uh, we're trying to support countries that want to be more democratic. And so in doing so and stabilizing these countries, we've, we make it significantly less likely that these countries become conflict zones and places where people can be radicalized because usually any anytime any of those things happen, those are direct impact back to U.S. national security. Um, and so that's kind of like our diplomatic process. So we're more like in the weeds experts. We get down on the ground, work with implement what we call implementation partners, which are usually a U.S. company and then a local, several local NGOs and nonprofits, and sometimes even local uh, local businesses, and essentially create this conglomerate to help try to solve like community-based problems. So what Peace Corps does on the ground level, USAID tries to do on the thirty thousand foot level. Great explanation, Vivek, and really neat that you're able to do that. I got two more questions for you around this. So one, I'm going to ask you the same thing I asked you about Ukraine. Sure. If you're going to have a, sure. a meal. What is the meal you're most looking forward to in Egypt? One of the things that I eat regularly out here is known as fool, which is like fava bean paste that they make. They paste it up and then they put it into like a sandwich, uh, which is their local bread called Esh Paladi, which is like this wheat, fibrous wheat bread. And it is it is a very pleasant breakfast to eat. I'll, uh, I'll let you go after this one because you've shared so much and I've really enjoyed this conversation. But I'm, I'm curious over the last... It seems about five years you've been kind of serving in various capacities. Right. What moment sticks with you the most from your time of service so far? One of the coolest moments was my best friend from high school, who was also my roommate in college. He reached out to me 
like maybe a, several months into my service or maybe almost the first year into my service. And he told me, um, hey, dude, you inspired me to join AmeriCorps. Uh, so he left his corporate job and joined AmeriCorps, which is a one-year program that you, you basically can do within the U.S. So AmeriCorps is an organization very similar to Peace Corps, but your work is going to be in the United States versus Peace Corps, you're going to go abroad. So he did his in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And when he told me that, I, I felt like that was one of the most rewarding moments of all of it that I do. Like there, there's these wonderful interactions I've had with kids, um, especially some of the kids just giving you a hug when you're leaving. And like they, they're so genuine about giving you that love. Uh, it's incredibly empowering. Like, and, and so, but at the same time, like when Soapy said that to me, it kind of validated it just internally to me. I'm like, I'm, I am choosing the right path. Well, and this ties back perfectly to your why. You, you simplified your why saying you want to have an impact on two or three people. And you've obviously had a very big impact on, on that person. And I, I'm just so grateful for the time today, Vivek. You, you dove into a lot. You were very open and vulnerable about, you know, why you made the decisions you made. And I have no doubt that people are going to listen to this and be inspired to maybe think about things a little bit differently or go pursue that passion. So I trust you're proud of the work that you're doing, the service that you're doing for, for the U S for the world. And, uh, and I look forward to having you on again. I really enjoyed this conversation and for you spending a, a Saturday afternoon in Egypt with me over here in the U S. So just really thankful and, um, really appreciate the time Vivek. And Clay, I can't thank you enough for having me on. And honestly, it's just been awesome to reconnect with you, um, and especially our journey and like who we were when we met 10 years ago. And now you're the father of three kids. And it's like this incredible journey that you're on yourself as a dad and like all of that. And I, I, I want to hear more about that actually, too. Hey, we built with Vivek today. Vivek, thanks for being on. Thanks, Clay, for having me. Have a great one. Hey, listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build with Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.